Here, please go to the microphone. Andrew McNeely. Let's welcome back our very own Andy McNeely. Good morning, friends. Uh, if you will pick up, I like that. If you will pick up a Bible, uh, one of the ones on the chair in front of you or whatnot, and turn to page 49. Everybody do it. Pick one up, page 49. Uh, we're going to jump into Exodus chapter 15, verse 1 in just a minute, but I want to give you a little bit of a preface, and first of all, go ahead and make the disclaimer that I realize there's no cover on this book, so me showing you a black book that tells you nothing. Uh, Greg Boyd wrote this book called Cross Vision, and most of uh, what I'm preaching on today is coming out of this, but also an incredible book, which is super easy to read. Brian Zond is one of my favorite authors. His name will be on the screen a couple times. Incredible guy, uh, and he wrote this book uh, called Sinners in the Hands of a Loving God. See the play on, on that there? Um, good stuff. So a lot of what I'm speaking about today uh, comes from there. Um, so Exodus chapter 15, just the overall uh, what happened in the chapters before. God's people, the Israelites, have been enslaved by Pharaoh and the Egyptians for a really long time. And they have endured some pretty terrible things. And uh, Moses and Aaron come to Pharaoh and they say, let my people go. And, and eventually Pharaoh, after lots of testing, finally says, fine, go, get out of here. So Moses takes the Israelites and leads them on a journey. They make it to the Red Sea. And when they get to the Red Sea, this massive body of water that is impassable. Um, and they have lots and lots of people with them. They get to this one barrier, the Red Sea on, on this side of them. And at about the same time, Pharaoh and his army are coming up across the desert, and they have this other foe on the other side, and, and, and you know, just in this moment of crisis, they cry out to God, um, and God comes and shows up like he does so often uh, in the lives of his people, and he parts the Red Sea. Uh, he actually takes this massive body of water and creates walls on either side in this dry pathway through the seabed for his people to, to travel on, and so God goes with his people uh, on the path across, they get to the other side of the Red Sea. Pharaoh's army follows, and they get into the middle of the sea, and God seemingly sends the waters to destroy Pharaoh and his army, and uh, that's where we pick up in uh, Exodus chapter 15. So this is the song that they sing after this event that the Israelites sing. I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. The horse and its rider he has hurled into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. He is my God, and I will praise him. My father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his army he has hurled into the sea. The best of Pharaoh's officers are drowned in the Red Sea. The deep waters have covered them. They sank to the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, was majestic in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shattered the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you threw down those who opposed you. You unleashed your burning anger. It consumed them like stubble. By the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The surging waters stood firm like a wall. The deep waters congealed in the heart of the sea as the Israelites crossed. The enemy boasted, Pharaoh, I will pursue, I will overtake them, I will divide the spoils, I will gorge myself on them. I will draw my sword and my hand will destroy them. But you, God, blew your, with your breath and the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. So Pharaoh and his army are swallowed up by the Red Sea, 
God is given credit, and God's people, the Israelites, rejoice in the mass slaughter of an army. Over, the seri- uh, over this series for the last few weeks, and, and you should go back and listen if you haven't, um, go back to the website or to the app and listen to the, uh, the past sermons to kind of catch up on where we are. Um, but we've been trying to look at how do we reconcile the God of the Old Testament with the God of the New Testament? How, how does that fit together? How does this God who claims to be never changing and constant look so opposite in his actions of the Old Testament violence and the New Testament love of Jesus? Like how do we, how do we, those two things fit together? And some of the common assumptions, some of the ground rules, parameters that we have to operate within as in this discussion as we m- ask that question, is the God of the Old Testament and New Testament the same? Is, is you know, who is he really? Some of the things that we've come to over the past couple weeks is, number one, that we should view the Bible and history through what's called a cruciform lens. So in other words, uh, cruciform just means cross-like. So uh, we go to the pinnacle of history, to the most important moment of all of history at the cross, and we look at Jesus, a representation of God, God himself. We look at Jesus on the cross, and we look at God in those moments, and we try and figure out who is God then— um, and that's how we view things. Jesus said, if you want to know the Father, you must know me. Jesus said, if you've seen me, Jesus, then you have seen God. Jesus told us over and over again that he was the perfect embodiment of God. So if you want to see who God is, we must look at Jesus first. The second assumption uh, is that, yes, we are allowed to question what we know about God. In many other religions, you really aren't invited to question God. Other gods throughout history have been known for smiting or pushing out of their presence people who will question them. But our God is different. Our God invites us into relationship. Relationship is two-way, and we're called to ask questions and to get to know who God is. And so this is actually a healthy thing that we're doing here as we're questioning the God of the Old Testament. Number three, God is never changing. The word is immutable. I really like that word. Um, I have lots of scriptures to share with you for all of these things, but uh, so if you really want to know what all the scriptures are, come up to me afterwards. I will give you lists. Um, but God is immutable. He does not change. In science, now I'm not a scientist, so forgive me, all the scientists in the room. There are many. Um, in, in science, right, like change is when one force affects another, leaving it different from how it was initially, right? And so like uh, an example would be cigarettes affect your lungs, right? But God is above all of that. He's beyond all of that. He's not affected by things. So God does not change. Meaning that whoever we find this God to be on this study, whoever we find that God is, that's who he is through and through. That's who he was from the beginning of time to the ends of the age. God does not change. With those things in mind, uh, let's pray. God, uh, we are excited to be invited into this conversation. Thank you, God, for loving us so much um, that you don't uh, sit on a throne high above us and tell us who you are, but you invite us to get to know you. You draw us in and and ask that we would come close um, so that we could see and understand your heart and who you really are. God, help us to uh, better understand you um, through through your word um, and through uh, the person of Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Our enlightened minds, our Western enlightened minds, uh, tend to, not tend to, we, we almost always separate supernatural from natural, right? Like, 
I- it's not very uh, like peop- like our culture to say that the supernatural is a part of our everyday lives. But that's not true. Like, like we tend to see it as this otherworldly thing that's very separate from the natural world. And sometimes it invades where we are, but for the most part, uh, they're very separate. But the ancient Near Eastern cultures who wrote the Bible, the hands that wrote the Bible, were uh, cultures that did not make that separation. The supernatural and the natural were very much intertwined in their world. They saw the supernatural as a part of everyday life. And so... God and evil were a part of everyday life. They weren't distant uh, uh, beings that were influencing things. They were present uh, from the beginning of time. And the representations that ancient Near Eastern cultures used, we find throughout the scriptures, the representations they used of cosmic evil were basically things that were chaotic and uncontainable, uncontrollable. Things like water, things like darkness, And then fun things like dragons. So today, we're going to talk about all those things. Um, Didn't know you were going to get to learn about dragons today, did you? Uh, God, from the very beginning of time, has been in this cosmic battle with evil. And uh, Boyd, in the book that I pointed out earlier, he calls this the conflict with chaos narrative. And he says that God, from the very beginning, has been in conflict with chaos. And we're going to walk through that. He says that this is one of the meta-narratives, one of the big picture stories, right, uh, that we, through which we see all of the intricate small stories in the Bible. And so it's one of the meta narratives that kind of help us see, as Paul Harvey would say, the rest of the story, right? So uh, in that story, Satan is a very big player in this, right? And so is God. And it's very important, it's crucial that we don't mix the two up, but we often do. Uh, I've been guilty of this for a long time in my life, of mixing the two up. And sometimes uh, with our clouded, distorted uh, view, we think of actions that Satan is doing and we attribute them to God. So let's start off by defining who Satan is and what he does, okay? Uh, Satan was a fallen angel who God very much loved. God created this, right? So God created the person of Satan, the angel of, of Satan, and so God very much loved him, but Satan chose evil and, and fell, as we say, um, and the power that God has given Satan is a great power over the earth. There's lots of passages that speak to Satan's power over the earth. Um, perhaps one of the most helpful is First uh, um, John 5.19. You don't have to turn there, but it says, We know that we are children of God and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. Um, So Satan has been given control over the world, but the titles that they use throughout, especially the New Testament for Satan, are things like prince of the world, prince of the air. Um, And those titles, the translation, what it means is that he's a ruler over an area for a time. Think of like a governor or something. He's given a district or an area which he has control over, but there is something over that control that has a greater power, right? Our governor has a lot of power, but the president has more, right? So kind of think about it in that way. Um, think about maybe in terms of God is the ultimate ruler of everything, but Satan is uh, like a functional ruler over the earth for a season. And what does Satan do? What is evil's effect on earth in the present day? Well, evil, Satan, uh, his task is to deceive and to destroy. 
over and over through the titles of who Satan is, is named or called or what evil is attributed to. Those are the two main things, to deceive and destroy. In John 10.10, 10, Jesus says that Satan is one who has come to kill and steal and destroy. And in the very next sentence, Jesus says, so Satan has come to kill, steal, and destroy. Jesus he, he says that he himself has come that all might have eternal life. You see, the Satan and the evil side of this cosmic battle brings death and blood. Jesus and the God side of this battle brings eternal life and life. Okay, so there's a very clear distinction between the two. Um, but it, it's not just in terms of humanity and how we act. This is also in terms of nature. Nature can be used for evil uh, and by evil. So when we think about hurricanes, blizzards, floods, wildfires, tsunamis, tornadoes, pick your natural disaster. Maybe there's one that you're terrified of like me. I'm terrified of tornadoes. I think everyone should be, but I am especially terrified of them. I can never live in the Midwest. You guys are awesome who live there. Um, but whatever those natural disasters are, we so often as humanity attribute them to God, right? It's God blowing off steam. It's God smiting whoever it is that he's destroying in those ways. And when you look at it that way, it's really conflicting with us. How could God do that when innocent people are, are dying at the hands of hurricanes and things like that? But we don't really have as much trouble when it's not innocent people who are dying at the hands of a natural disaster, right? In World War II, the Nazis had this offensive called, the op called Operation Barbosa, and it's when the Nazis were trying to invade and take over Russia. They took with them some 700,000 Nazis. Uh, they took over 90,000 Italian fascists, 1.2 million communist Russians. Now, communists, fascists, Nazis, all enemies of America, right? And so as an American, we read into that story or we watch those videos or we see those, and we think, good. Evil got what was coming to it, right? Like, God smited the bad people through his, I didn't tell you what killed all of them. It was, it was the, uh, the terribly cold uh, Russian winters, right? They were unprepared, and so literally hundreds of thousands of people died just from the cold. Uh, and we can look at that, and we can say, well, clearly that was the work of God. I mean, like, evil was destroyed. It had to be God doing it. Um, this is how the Israelites felt and how they sang in the song, When God Destroyed Pharaoh and his army. Clearly, God was smiting these people, and he was destroying them. But the gospel writers, interestingly enough, go back to the cruciform lens, viewing all of history through Jesus on the cross. The gospel writers had that, right? They saw Jesus, lived with him, and then they saw him on the cross before they wrote any of the New Testament. So they knew what God looked like on the cross, and that was the lens through which the New Testament is written. And these gospel writers spoke of afflictions and bad things happening, always as coming from Satan and his demons, always as coming from evil, never as being attributed to God, never as being God's mysterious providence that people would experience, you know, uh, afflictions and bad things, right? And so it's interesting when we look at who God is and who uh, God is in this, uh, in this passage, because it's not actually God's action. I believe that it's God's inaction in this moment. That God, when we think about creation, I think Aaron talked about this a little bit last week. Um, in creation, God is creating order out of chaos. Go back and read the creation narratives. God is taking what is chaos, what is being controlled by evil, and he is creating barriers and he is creating order. That's what creation is. 
And so God is doing that. He's separating his creation from evil um, by creating order. God is constantly at work, even today, uh, working to hold back evil from devouring mankind and earth. Because that's what evil does. Evil destroys. So evil not held back will continue to destroy. So we thank God that he is holding back that evil. And sometimes God chooses to stop acting, though, and let evil do what evil wants to do, and that is destroy. It's not that God is acting, doing evil or bad, but it's his inaction allowing evil to prevail for a time. We're going to go a little deeper and, and explain a little more. See, humanity opened the door for that evil to return. When God created, uh, when God went through creation, right, there's a time in the garden where there is no chaos and where there is no evil. And then it's humanity welcomes that back in, opens the door again for evil to come back in in bigger ways. Um, but luckily, God continues to hold much of it back. The consequences of our sin is the unleashing of more evil, which demands blood. When humanity tends toward evil in the cosmic battle, our sense of justice demands blood because that's what the evil side demands. But what about when our sense of justice tends toward the God side of this cosmic battle? What does that look like? Well, in order to better understand that, we got to go back to Exodus chapter 7 and see a little bit more of the story. So in Exodus chapter 7, uh, we read about the beginning of when Aaron and Moses went to Pharaoh and went to him for the first time to say, let my people go. You know, let the Israelites be free. And in Exodus chapter 7, we see that Pharaoh says no, and uh, we have the plagues, right? So many of you know about the ten plagues that, um, that happened to Pharaoh and the Egyptians. If you go back and read that, I really encourage you to read it. We don't have much time to get into it right now. But uh, those plagues, uh, there's a good argument for the fact that they're actually the undoing of creation. Each of those plagues is taking a day of creation and undoing it. And so taking the order that God created on that day of creation and God is stepping back and allowing disorder and chaos to happen again on, uh, on the uh, Pharaoh and the Egyptians, um, concluding with uh, the destruction of humanity as uh, all the firstborn males are, are killed. So there's this return of chaos. But fast forward to the beginning of the conversation, or rewind to the beginning of the conversation, where, Pharaoh, uh, where Moses and Aaron come to Pharaoh. And when they first come to Pharaoh to ask that Pharaoh will let the Israelites go, um, Pharaoh says, uh, basically, like, show me something, uh, show me uh, some sort of magic to prove that your God is really a God. And so Aaron, God tells him to do this. Aaron throws down his staff, and his staff turns into a snake. Interestingly enough, the Hebrew word for snake there is actually the word dragon. Come back to dragons. Um, and that word dragon. And so, But Pharaoh says, oh, cool, a snake, that's great. Come here, magicians. His magicians come in. They throw down all their staffs. All of their staffs turn into snakes. And, you know, Aaron, uh, Aaron doesn't control this. God does. The, this Aaron's snake or dragon eats all of the other snakes or dragons. And so we see evil consuming evil. We see evil doing what evil will do. The dragon represents evil, and we see it consuming whatever it can. In this case, it's evil consuming evil. So, so think about that. It's dragon eating dragon. That's how this story begins uh, in Pharaoh's courts. And it ends, uh, or a, a big point in the story, is when 
Pharaoh, who is characterized throughout the Old Testament and throughout other ancient Near Eastern writings as a dragon. He is caricatured as a beast, as the, represent the, character, the representation of evil, Pharaoh himself and the Egyptians, is consumed by another beast, the Red Sea. In Psalm 74, uh, the Red Sea is called the Leviathan. In Isaiah 51, it's called Rahab. Uh, which is another monster, Habakkuk. Uh, it's called uh, the Canaanite god of chaos. So the Red Sea is seen as another dragon. And so we have dragon consuming dragon, evil consuming evil, because God has stepped back and removed himself from the situation. And evil is allowed to do what it will do, which is to devour and kill, devour and kill to satiate its bloodlust. See, evil wants death. Evil wants destruction. That's where evil is headed. So with that in mind, I, I think we should pause right now and just ask, what was God's reaction to that? Like, how do you, when you think about God on the cross, when you think about his action on the cross, how did God react to Pharaoh and his army uh, being uh, killed by the Red Sea? So uh, we know how the Israelites responded, right? And they represent humanity, God's people. Um, they watched the mass slaughtering of Pharaoh's army. They watch as people, uh, as men, husbands, dads, brothers, thrash about and scream as they drown to death, and, Israelite throws a p and Israel throws a party afterwards. Uh, mankind leaning toward the evil side of this camp, mankind goes back and forth in this wrestling, even today we do, where we're, are we leaning toward the evil camp in this cosmic battle or the God camp? As we lean toward the evil camp, our understanding of justice is punitive and retributive. Basically, that just means that there's got to be consequences. There has to be a righting of the scales. Things have to be made even. And so if there is blood, there must be blood to satisfy that, to satiate that. Um, but that's when we're leaning toward the evil side. And we look at that, and just like the Israelites, when evil gets what's coming to it, we rejoice. And we're excited, and we, we celebrate, we cheer. But I have to believe that the God that we see through the person of Jesus, the God that we see on the cross, and we're going to get into that, that he would have reacted differently. Think about the words that Jesus said in Matthew chapter 9, verse 13. Matthew 9, 13. Jesus says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Those are interesting words, aren't they? That he would go and be a sacrifice, but he would say, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. In the book, there's a really good argument for the fact that that was Jesus saying that I am the final sacrifice. No more is there a need for sacrifice, right? After Jesus, we're no longer called to sacrifice animals. There's no longer a need for blood because Jesus' blood finished all of that. He did away with the ritual, bloodthirsty uh, idea of sacrifice. On the cross, Jesus forgives instead. What he does is he forgives his murders. Have you ever thought about that? The fact that Jesus it wasn't when Jesus didn't die on the cross and then raised from the dead and say, Father, forgive them. He said it while they were murdering him on the cross in the most painful way, right? Going through the most excruciating, like that is the pinnacle of forgiveness. Forgiveness could not be higher than that. It could not be greater than that. And Jesus on the cross illustrates for us forgiveness. That's what God on the cross looks like. Also, he wept. His heart broke for creation uh, who had reached this ultimate level of evil. I have to believe that this God represented on the cross 
again, the unchanging, immutable God, that he also wept for Pharaoh and his army. And I would even take it a step further that God probably wept for his people, the Israelites, as they misunderstood what was happening and as they rejoiced in the death of Pharaoh, God's creation. Um, see, humanity likes to repay an eye for an eye, don't we? Right? Like, that's our way. But Jesus said, love your enemy. His way was different. And the counterintuitive ways of Jesus show us that our intuition has clearly been clouded by sin. See, we believe that the primary truth about humanity happens in Genesis 3. The, the primary truth, the first truth about humanity happens in Genesis 3, that we sin. That's we, we start there with humanity. We look at humanity and we say humanity is sinners. But that's the secondary truth. Genesis 1 came first where we were created in the image of God. God created mankind in his image and then sin came. So we need to start looking at people through that lens, that they were created in the image of God, and that includes Pharaoh, who was created in the image of God. Uh, God stopped um, holding back the cosmic forces of evil on, Cal on Calvary, just like he did the Red Sea, allowing evil to seemingly prevail and to quench its bloodlust. And Satan, like a junkyard dog who's... Uh, chain has been loosed, lunged at the opportunity, sick with bloodlust, eager to slay his foe, Jesus, on the cross. And what we find out later, and Satan finds out later, is that he was tricked, right? That God used Satan and his bloodlust, the force of evil coming against Christ on the cross, that force. Uh, and as we talked about a few weeks ago, God redirects like in uh, Aikido, I think is what it's called, that kind of like karate where people are coming at you with energy and you redirect their energy back towards them. God did the same thing on the cross. He allowed Satan to come with all of the evil and at its highest force to kill his son. And as this happens, God uses that to defeat Satan's biggest power and evil's biggest power, which is what it's hungry for, and that is death. Um. We think sometimes that the power of Christ uh, is in the fact that he died on the cross, that he was made a martyr. But there are martyrs throughout history, right? A martyr simply uh, leads to, like, it impassions its followers, but only for a season. Jesus was more than a martyr. He was a martyr. The cross is important. But Christ's power comes in his defeat of death and in his resurrection on Easter. That's where the power of Christ comes from. So on the cross... God delivers the striking blow to Satan. Colossians 2.14 says it this way. By means of the perfect love displayed on the cross, God, not the perfect justice displayed on the cross, right? Not the perfect sacrifice displayed on the cross, the perfect love displayed on the cross. God disarmed and triumphed over the powers and authorities. Here, powers and authorities in the translation could also be Satan or evil. So that's who we're talking about thereby making a public spectacle of them, right? So Satan is made a fool at the cross. God has the ultimate victory in this uh, cosmic battle of God versus evil. And Satan realizes it afterwards, that he's made a tactical mistake. But it doesn't mean that Satan gives up. It doesn't mean that evil is no more. We know that, right? We see evil every day. We know that Satan will continue to deceive and destroy until Jesus' return. What happened on the cross 
is cosmic evil hell-bent on sacrifice, thirsty for blood. But what about God at the cross? See, I believe that God's character is incompatible with rage and violence. You look at the God on the cross, his character is incompatible with rage and violence. I believe that God's sense of justice did not demand Christ's death. Humanity, tending toward the evil, the evil side, we demanded Christ's death. Remember at the cross, humanity yelled, crucify him. But what did God say? Forgive them. Right? We've got to look back to the cross. Our, our problem so often with looking at a, a violent Old Testament God and believing that's who he is, is a matter of perspective. And a matter of justice, how we view justice. Because God's justice is different from humanity's justice. Um, we have to put back on that cruciform lens. See, Jesus at the cross illustrates once and for all that God is bigger than this punitive substitutionary atonement. What, what that means, that Aaron talked about it a few weeks ago, is that there's punishment due for wrongs committed. There is blood owed. And that's what I've believed for most of my life about who God was, that there was a, a penalty due. There was blood owed to God, and Jesus satiated God's bloodlust. I don't believe that anymore. Now I believe that God is bigger than that. And Jesus illustrates at the cross that God's sense of justice is beyond that. God is capable, hear me, of just plain forgiving. God does not need, he does not demand the writing of scales. God is capable, he is bigger than that. He can simply forgive and forget. God is capable of that, and we must begin believing that. Brian Zahn, uh, in the book, he says, the violence part of the cross is entirely human. The forgiveness part of the cross is entirely divine. When humanity tends toward evil in this cosmic battle, our sense of justice demands blood. But when humanity tends toward God in this cosmic battle, our sense of justice demands forgiveness. This is who God is at the cross, and we begin to see God's true nature revealed on the cross, and we're given a new paradigm through which we live. I love this uh, other quote from Brian Zond. He says, now there's a new strategy of organizing the world. Instead of being organized around blame and ritual killing, the world is now to be organized through Jesus on the cross around forgiveness and co-suffering love. Forgiveness and co-suffering love. That's what Christians are called to live out. And what would the world look like if we lived that way? What would the meeting between President Trump and Kim Jong-un look, look like? Huh? What would that meeting be interesting, wouldn't it? What would America look like? Would we ever go to war or would we instead rush to the aid of Syrians and Afghans in this time? Would we instead choose to forgive the people in the Middle East for what we believe happened on 9-11 or what really did happen on 9-11? We would work towards healing in that part of the world. We would choose to enter into co-suffering love and go be with those people. Guys, Restore's going back to Greece again, and I would encourage you, if you have not been, find a way to get there. I went twice, and I wish I had gone every time. I, I want to go this summer. I'm not able to. Make it a priority. Get there. It helps me understand what co-suffering love is. It helps me see who Jesus was and what he calls us to do. If Jesus calls us to go to those who are suffering and stand by their side and be with them in their ultimate struggles— like Jesus did for us coming to earth. This is an incredible way to get to do that. 
And it sounds selfish, like you're going to get a lot out of it, and you are. But it is also an incredible way to share the love of Christ and to show others what Jesus did on the cross with co-suffering love. Go to Greece. Uh, secondly, another, another action step would be um, what does co-suffering love and forgiveness look like in your neighborhood? Uh, for Janet and I, where we live in Baltimore, the street that we live on, um, lots of history books are written about uh, our, our road, uh, York Road. It divides Baltimore City. And one side is African-American and impoverished, and the other side is Caucasian and wealthy. And little kids grow up looking across the street, understanding who they are and how they fit into this society. And we could choose as white, wealthy people to live on one side of the road and to never cross York Road. But we don't because we know that Jesus calls us on the cross to co-suffering love. And so we cross the street. And so we stand with our brothers and sisters in humanity and we lock arms with them and we weep with them because that's what Jesus did. And that's what we are to look like. That's the kind of lives that we're supposed to live here in Washington, D.C. Until you move away, you just won't really, I don't think, uh, I didn't, uh, grasp how incredible Montgomery County is. You guys get to experience every day the melding of cultures and people from around the world of all different walks of life existing together in peace. Come visit us in Baltimore and we'll show you the opposite. Um, it, it's just incredible what's going on here. And I think you guys also, though, have an opportunity to reach out and be co-suffering with other people here in Montgomery County, although it might not seem like it. There is a population of people in Montgomery County who are undocumented immigrants, and they are experiencing this separation, and they are experiencing uh, their suffering. And so you can stand with them and co-suffer with them and show them what the love of Christ looks like. What does it look like in your home, in your family? There would be no more grudges. Uh, family dinners would be peaceful and fun. You would choose to be present with your spouse while they're going through depression. You would choose to sit with them and listen to them and not try and fix them, but just to be present and to do what Jesus did, to come and, and sit with us in our suffering and show love. You would also choose to pray forgiveness. Um, if you guys haven't done the prayer school yet uh, here at Restore, when it comes up again, you should definitely do it. Changed my life. Um, every morning I wake up, almost every morning, and, and pray for 45 minutes to an hour. And in that time, I pray through the Lord's Prayer. And when I get to the part that says, forgive us our trespasses or our sins, as we forgive those who trespass against us, I pray, God, forgive me for all these things I've done. And I list them. The list is long. God, forgive me for this, 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 this. That prayer has always been, oddly enough, pretty easy for me. Like to say, God, here's all the things I've done wrong. I, I know that I deserve punishment for this. Please forgive me for that. But the second part of that prayer says, as we forgive those who trespass against us, maybe you're called to forgive in a radical way that you've never done before because Jesus calls us not just to forgive but to pray for our enemies. And so in, the, in that part of my prayer now, I pray, God, uh, I forgive this person for doing this to me. It's a radical prayer. It's really weird to do, but I would encourage you to try it. And as you try that, then, then pray good things for that person. Pray that God will bring prosperity and health for them, that God will care for them, that God will be in their marriage and in their health and all those. And when you start praying those things for people who you think are your enemy, it's really hard to view them as an enemy anymore. That's subversive love. That's what God looks like on the cross. 
Um, so I'd encourage you guys to do that. Uh, Brian Zahn says, forgiveness is not receiving payment for a debt. That's not what happened on the cross. Forgiveness is the gracious cancellation of debt. Our sin on the cross was canceled. It wasn't paid for. It was canceled. It, it was God got rid of it, and he did it through grace. We have to start seeing God as bigger than our simplistic view of justice. God is so much bigger. Uh, we are called to simply forgive as God forgave on the cross. Um, if we follow in the way of Jesus and we forgive people and we pray for our enemies, I'm telling you, people are going to look at you differently. They are gonna, they're going to be shocked at who you are as a Christ follower, and they're going to have lots of questions about why you're so different. And in those moments, you have the opportunity to proclaim the name of King Jesus and say, he is the reason. Because of what he did on the cross and the co-suffering love that he showed me and the forgiveness that he washed over me, that is why I'm able to be this way. Let's pray. God, we are um, we're thankful for forgiveness. God, uh, we, we thank you for forgiving us and for um, giving us uh, a way um, to be in even closer relationship with you, God. Giving us your son, Jesus, um, who on the cross um, washed away our sins. God, that you would cancel that debt, that you would completely forget our sins, that you wouldn't hold them against us, that you would welcome us back into community with you back into relationship with you. God, I pray that we can trust you.